Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder. Hey, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. My guest is Drew Brendeman, and he is a multifamily operator. They've done a, a ton of deals over the last decade plus. And so we talk about his journey starting out as a, his first business ventures when he was 15 years old and actually made some good money and started reading books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Think and Grow Rich as a very young person. And that kind of influenced his, uh, his growth into the real estate space where he was able to get some, an excellent partner early on that was a single LP for many, many deals. Um, after that, big, big multifamily deals. And so interesting um, setup where he was able to build a substantial track record really without outside investor capital other than this one investor and one partner. And so he's parlayed that now over the last couple of years doing syndications, raising capital for these multifamily deals that they're doing in uh, a number of markets. So he's in Chicago, moving down to Austin, be doing Dallas, Austin, Phoenix, and uh, Florida. So, so a, a substantial organization, full cycle on a bunch of deals. They're currently uh, own and manage a little over $200 million in assets, just kind of give you a size, a sense of the size of his company, but really smart guy. And I just love talking shop with, with other entrepreneurs and seeing what makes people tick, how they've structured their companies. And so we get into all that and had a really, uh, really good conversation around that stuff. If you enjoy the DJE podcast, thank you so much. A five-star review on Apple means a lot, helps the reach of the show. If you could go in there and hit that, I would be grateful. We're going to have a message from our sponsors, and then we'll get into the podcast here with Drew. Thanks, guys. This episode is brought to you by DJE Texas Management Group, a San Antonio, Texas-based real estate investment firm with a track record of transacting on several hundred million dollars of multifamily land and industrial deals throughout Texas. DJE's been in business for over a decade and is approaching 100 team members in San Antonio. To learn more about DJE, visit djetexas.com or the link in the show notes of this episode. This episode's also brought to you by apartmenteducators.com, a complete ecosystem for professionals to learn how to find, finance, and operate large multifamily properties for profit. You can get started with a free mini course and learn more at apartmenteducators.com or visit the link in the notes. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you. How's everything going? Good. Just we're starting to chat about the weather before we got going. We got a, a beautiful uh, gray day here in the in the forties here in Chicago. So I'm envious of your your weather down there. <laughs> yeah, so. it's a little overcast, but it's definitely not forties, and it's. Uh, Definitely a different weather situation. And we were talking a little bit before in the green room. You guys are getting ready to move down to Texas. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, um, and happy to get into my backstory or wherever you want to get going, sure. but really, yeah, I've lived my whole life in the Midwest and, you know, my whole, whole life, I really also wanted to, you know, move to California, you know, every, every winter by February, when you haven't seen the sun for two months, oh, um, you know, you're, you want to get out of there and you see everybody in LA or, and, you know, Phoenix and Texas and Florida, you know, enjoying themselves all year. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're finally doing it. You know, we're not, we're moving to the new, um, to the new California, basically to Austin, Texas. So here at the end of the month. So uh, looking yeah. forward to that. And then going to be expanding our company down there as well, obviously. So. I love it, man. I remember thinking a few years ago, I grew up in San Antonio and 
been going to Austin forever. I remember thinking like, Austin's got to be at some kind of a plateau. And this is a number of years ago. And then, you know, Rogan moves there, Elon moves there. And you're just like, okay, I think there's a new, <laughs> a new level yeah. for Austin. And then obviously real estate and everything, but it's kind of become this cultural uh, center of the world, which is super cool to see. Um, but anyway, let's kind of level set for everybody. You're a multifamily operator. Um, yep. You guys are in a bunch of different markets. What's, you know, maybe a little background there on kind of what you guys are doing now. And then I, I'd love to dig in on your story and how you, how you built the company. Cause that's kind of my, my favorite thing to do is talk to other entrepreneurs and find out what makes them tick. Yeah. Sounds good. You think just so to start from the very beginning then, or yeah, start, man, that's great. Whatever, whatever, you, whatever like. you like. Okay, cool. Yeah. So both my parents are, were teachers. So I didn't come from like a business uh, background necessarily in terms of like a family and I'm from the Milwaukee area. Um, but it kind of got started young in the business world where I had some of my friends were playing this video game, Diablo two, this would be back in like the year, like 2001 or 2002. Yeah. I remember um, that. Yeah. And you could actually sell your items for real money, not officially in the game, but on eBay or outside of the game. And, you know, I saw them sell some stuff and they were like, yeah, we made each made like 20, 30 bucks selling our characters and our armor and whatnot. And, you know, I went on eBay and I saw these things sometimes selling for $10, sometimes for 20, the same item. So I looked at it and was like, why don't I try to make some money doing this? And then fast forward over like a period of four years, just wheeling and dealing, buying stuff for 10 bucks, reselling for 20. I made just under a hundred thousand dollars. And I, and I kept, yeah. And I kept it all. Um, at what age? Yeah. I mean, this would have been, um, ages, you know, 15 to 19 where it's real money, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And it it was, um, yeah, I just made basically like five and $10 at a time where I'd come home from school and I'd have like, you know, 20, 30 sales, you know, made either on eBay or just directly on my website. And I'd go make all my deliveries and I'd do my homework. I'd go to bed. It was just like, just a, a hustle. Um, you know, and I, I also played sports. So then if, you know, if it was basketball season, then I also had to go to go to basketball or baseball, but then I'd be thinking about making the, you know, making more sales. Uh, you know, while I'm, you know, shooting free throws or something. So, um, but it, what was nice about that was it got me going and reading these books that probably most, you know, whatever, like regular people would read, like when they're 40, you know, like, Hey, mm. I should read about what to do with this money I'm saving. Where for me, I was doing that when I was 17, cause I'm accumulating this money. And that's what was nice, at least about having the teacher parents is we, they weren't high earners. So they weren't big spenders where it was like, yeah, there's always more money um, coming in from like a really high paying job or anything. So they were really good about saving money, talking about investing where my dad was really big into investing in mutual funds. Uh, so that's sort of where I got started investing was I started investing in mutual funds in the stock market. Um, but I, you know, just as a teenager, you have such like a short time horizon in terms of what you would invest in where, you know, I didn't do well with that where, um, but it was really more just sort of my own behavior that was making it like not go well. I'd buy something, and then sell it like a week later, you know, if it didn't go up, you know, so it wasn't um, good investing, but I kept reading about, you know, all these books people read, you know, when they're probably, like I said, 40, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Intelligent Investor, Think and Grow Rich, all the, all these books. And I was reading Investing in Real Estate by Gary Eldred and the light bulb really went off. I mean, that's like a simple book, um, you know, explaining the basics of real estate investing and, he had this example where it was, you know, the property goes up, let's say 
uh, 3%, you know, this is buying like a duplex in his example, they go up 3% every year, you know, reading 2002. So, you know, for the last, you know, whatever, 100 years, homes have gone up, you know, 3% every year. Uh, and you put 10% down, uh, that's a 30% return just on that one aspect of the deal. And the light bulb went off for me. So the book also explains cash flow, paying your loan down, appreciation, the tax breaks, but just keeping it simple. You know, I really liked how that sounded where I would also get cash flow. It's kind of like a small business, um, you know, combining a small business and an investment. So I thought, you know what, when I go to college uh, and I was going to go to UW Madison and I'm going to, when I, I'm going to start out in the dorms as a freshman, like you, like you have to there. And then I'm going to buy my first deal. And mm -hmm. I did, I bought four deals while I was a freshman in college uh, and just have been off and going ever since. So um, once I, you know, I invested all my own money in college and then I wanted to figure out like, okay, what could I do to actually to like learn more? So I got an internship with an office developer, um, got a full-time job with a multifamily developer up in Minnesota then a full-time job with a retail developer. This was all this in like a couple year time window. Um, mm -hmm. And at that first full-time job up in Minnesota, I met my first uh, partners. So it was a son that was interning there and then his dad. So I went and I met with them, explained all the activity I was doing on my own, you know, how I um, bought these deals on my, on my own and uh, what I do for a living and met with them. And they really liked one of the deals I printed on brought to that meeting and we ended up buying it. So at the time I was really surprised because um, I think my biggest deal at that point was 700,000 that I had done. And this was a two and a half million dollar uh, shopping center. So yeah. it was a big step up in price, um, you know, and they, they believed in me, believed in the deal. Um, so we got going, you know, the dad was the investor and then me and the son did all the work finding the deals. So that like be like 2009 to 2011, uh, you know, so up in Minnesota, really cut our teeth getting into those larger uh, commercial deals. We bought retail, office, industrial. We couldn't find any multifamily to buy. Um, there wasn't really much distress up there um, in the multifamily side. So that's something that I always remember. You know, there were a lot of shopping centers and office buildings where, you know, the developer might have like one uh, full building they could sell. And then they yep. sell that to us at a, at a steal at a, you know, we were buying at it sounds crazy now, but we were buying eight and nine caps and borrowing at, you know, five and a half, six. So the cash Whoa. flow was, was great. Yeah. It was, you know, regular real estate, not where you're buying at, uh, you know, four caps and borrowing at, uh, you know, four or something, but yeah, that, so we got, you know, cut our teeth doing that. And then eventually I moved to Chicago, um, for, for that retail job while well, I was doing all this on the side, just night and weekends, basically working three jobs, uh, you know, my actual job, my own deals that I still owned, and then the stuff that I was buying with my partners. Uh, then like 2013, we bought our first uh, multifamily deal in Chicago. And those, you know, those deals all went really well, where let's say 2013 to 2017, um, we had $3 million that we invested of the fathers, and we kept every deal we bought, and then we raised the rents, uh, refied out all the equity. On average, across, across like the, the 12 deals I did in Chicago, mm -hmm. we refied out 113% of the equity and um, kept the 3 million. We kept, you know, let's say we buy 10 million with that, refile out all the money, buy another 10, do it again. We did three cycles with that, with his money and ended up buying $30 million of property and refine, you know, all of it. And then some out. One investment. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so far, this is now 10 years, just working with one, uh, you know, 
my my friend and his uh and his dad basically and, and i guess i say my friend but also like one thing too to i didn't i didn't know them before you know working at this place so it wasn't right. um like i had you know sort of yeah so i sort of made my luck with that where that's one thing where um i was talking to a friend a, a different friend of mine he never heard the whole story actually he's like oh i actually thought you guys were just like best friends and you walked into that i was like yeah no they he he also got a real estate degree at uw madison and he could have talked to any one of the like 100 people in his class or um any one of the dozen other guys that worked there doing deals at the company uh we were all working at but no it was i think a lot because of that activity that they saw me doing where no one else was actually doing deals they were either students or you know just whatever just uh, associates just kind of you know, drinking beers on the weekend and, you know, doing, you know, working a nine to five. Yeah. That, um, that, that's amazing. I mean, one relationship can completely change your life and you never know who's watching, right? Yeah. You have all these interactions and you, you just never know who's paying attention. It's interesting now as a business owner for a number of years, I'm in my forties and I, all I'm doing is looking for talent, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's the business I'm in. I mean, we, we do real estate, we do capital, you know, this and that, but at the end of the day, I'm just looking for talent. And, and I'm like, if people knew that, that every successful business owner is just always scouting for talent, they probably maybe act differently, but yeah, know, what a, what a cool uh, meeting and obviously worked out, right? That's, that's incredible. Yeah. It worked out great for everybody where, uh, you know, the dad, he had one commercial property that he had his business located in, but he wasn't in real estate. He was, had a really a highly successful business and, uh, also was this, uh, had an accounting degree, but his business was in the, was in construction. So he, he was around real estate, saw his clients make a lot of money, but wasn't, you know, if he, he wouldn't have probably known if you said like, uh, we need to be at a 120 debt cover on this deal. Like what, what we're talking yeah. about when we're sizing our loan. And that's, that's what he needed us for. What's a good sure. deal. What's a bad deal. How do you set them up? And then actually doing the work where he, he had a, a business that he was plenty busy with. And then, you know, he had, you know, frankly, like plenty of money. So probably not interested in like just starting an entirely second uh, business that then would take up all his free time. So yeah, perfect yeah. limited partner, right? I mean, that's, that's perfect setup. Win-win. Yeah. So having, you know, and it's different to today, we're doing more syndications let's, on a lot of the new deals yep. where we're, we're pooling other investors. So kind of what, um, but that was great. You know, that's, and we still work together where we're doing, if we sell something, we'll do a 1031 into a new bigger deal. Uh, but he's not deploying any, any new money really. But what was great back then, like in 2009, 10, 11, you know, you basically just had to, you just talked to one guy. If he also liked the deal, you're buying it. Love it. It wasn't, so it wasn't where, okay, we need to convince, you know, a hundred people that this is going to be a good deal. Or you can have a conversation on the front end. Um, and so we were able to have like a lot of conviction with the the things we bought, where probably with a lot of like, you know, if, you know, conventional underwriting, even today, if you're going to buy something like it should work where, you know, a year ago, two years ago, people were buying three, you know, 3% cap rate deals, borrowing at, uh, you know, floating rate and made those work because you could assume, you know, you sell it at a four cap or, you know, it's cause you're still trending your cap rate up. And anyways, what's, it's crazy today. It's like to most people with the kind of conventional underwriting, you could buy a five cap today and it, it won't work because you're mm -hmm. borrowing over five, you trend your cap rate up and I got to sell it at a high five or a six. And the returns actually aren't too great. If you're in that scenario, I was in 2009 where you had someone with fresh capital and you just had to sort of convince them of one of like, of the deal, that would be a great, uh, 
scenario to find yourself in today because you yeah. could say i get it like this is hard to make sense on a spreadsheet but like this price is like 25% lower than it was a year and a half ago like it yeah. will work it's yep. just hard to make sense on a spreadsheet and that's why so many groups say they're pencil down today is cuz that's um you know distorted by conventional underwriting it's hard to make things pencil right now yeah it's a real advantage for somebody right now we're talking very beginning of Q2 2022 right now and trying to there's just going to be this divide of people that have more liquidity or or different access to capital versus a syndication, which is kind of the most difficult thing to pencil. You're trying to get 50 LPs, a certain benchmark on an IRR and it's just, it's just different. But yeah, for those folks with alternate source of capital, it's maybe a little more patient or looks at it differently. There's for sure there's discounts to be had. Yeah. And so, and I think those deals, the stuff you could buy today, that'll make a lot of sense once, uh, you know, if you look at a five or 10 year hold, you know, this yeah. is how all these wealthy families in these big cities made money in real estate. Like nobody or actually a better example. One of the people I bought a deal off of in Chicago, his dad, he bought like 50 duplexes in the Lincoln park neighborhood for like 30 or 40 or 50,000. And that's a neighborhood where, uh, it's one of the nicest neighborhoods in Chicago and a duplex would be a million dollars today. Yep. And I don't know what his IRR is or anything like he just, he could have probably made a huge return on a five-year hold, but he kept it and, you know, literally made, you know, with, if there was no cash flow, would have made 50 million bucks just sitting on the things. And I'm, yep. and I'm sure, sure there's cash flow because the rents are uh, very high there. So yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so I think this is so low. It just, it's going to work one way or the other. Right. Yeah. And so that's, you know, it's real estate is about making money slow and, you know, it's not the thing where you're just uh, flipping. So in and out of things, but yeah, I guess just to bring it to like today. So um, actually, so in that, you know, in this father son partnership, the son, he actually passed away unexpectedly in 2019. Um, so kind of my whole like life was just kind of thrown up in an etch a sketch sort of um, where, you know, I, that was, we had been doing every deal together for the most part for 10 years. And then, um, you know, the, you know, right. And then the, the dad's not as interested in doing as much new deals. Um, if he had to carry someone like the workload. Um, so then that, you know, I had to kind of go, all right, what's going to be, um, you know, what, what should I do next? And I went back through my Rolodex, if you will, and, um, just continued having conversations with people. And I, I ended up, I got into another, similar scenario where it's a partnership where it's a, this time a father-in-law and a son-in-law. Um, and from, we started buying deals in 2019 and we, in the last, you know, three years, call it about, about a hundred million dollars of property just a little bit over. Um, so then, um, today I own about, you know, just over $200 million of property with most of it, just with those two investors. Right. Um, and then in 2020, 2021, I sort of was reevaluating, like, what should I be investing in it too, where we had bought all these different product types early on. Uh, the Chicago apartment deals had all gone really well, um, but they were really hard to execute. And it felt like we were, I'm sure everyone feels this, where they're buying like the the best deals in the market and they're doing a really good job. Our returns were really high where our average uh, realized return is a 25% plus IRR. And these aren't yeah. on like short holds. These are on average five-year holds too. So yeah. we're... Um, so we were delivering really good returns, but you could tell the whole time, you know, we're, we're just facing all these headwinds with taxes. There's not that many people moving here and they're building a lot. 
So why not get in front of some of those trends uh, and actually like look at other markets? And so mm-hmm. what what happened is we we evaluated the entire country, figured out what's actually correlated with price appreciation and uh, multifamily doing well. And we we started uh, moving into new markets. So in 2021, we moved into Phoenix. Uh, this year, we're we're going to also expand into Dallas and Austin. And I'm I'm moving to Austin, as uh, I think we're starting to say at the, the top of the, sh- the, the thing here, where mm-hmm. um, we want to go. I want to go all in on the Sun Belt, and I want to also. Uh, so I want to get in front of those trends uh, and just do the same thing we were doing in Chicago. You know, executing really good multifamily deals but be in places that you actually have a tailwind. And then, and then also I want to open this up to more people where we, we all made a lot of money, myself included with these families doing these deals, but I wanted to try, you know, a new, a new thing, if you will, and have, you know, just every, you know, individuals invest in our deals. You know, previously I'd have people, uh, I get introduced to people who could invest in my deals, but I wasn't set up to do it where right. um, everything was shared with these partners as well. Like if we had an accountant, it would be, it was like an employee of our, uh, our company, our partnership. So I, I really, I couldn't, if someone wanted to invest a hundred thousand dollars, somebody really couldn't do anything for them. Um, and so I wanted to, wanted to fix that one, open it up and just kind of help more people get into get into real estate because definitely changed my life. And I saw how much it changed, even the lives of the people that were kind of attached to it, the son, the son-in-law, the other kids in these families where it really, this, you can make a lot of money uh, slowly in real estate. So. Yeah. Being the conduit to that for people is a cool part of this business. The kind of retail options for investment capital for an average person they they suck. I mean, it's just yeah. the default um, investment option. And I'm sure you've run into countless folks as I have that have done well in their careers or businesses. And then it becomes an issue of, I got a million bucks liquid. Like I know it's, it's losing inflation. What do we, what do we do here? And to your point earlier with, you know, one of your early partners, they're not in a position to start a real estate firm. This is hard work right. and looking for deals and underwriting deals. I mean, this is a whole thing. We've got a whole team to do that. So I, I like being that conduit. I think there's it's it's an, an important role to kind of be an on-ramp for people in this alternative investment space, especially if you've got this track record that you guys have been able to build. That's kind of the gold standard, I think, for being a real estate sponsor and really hard to get. And it's really precious once you uh once you have it. I'm curious, you know, we, we started the other way. We started syndicating. I'd done a lot of small deals myself enough to the point where I felt like, okay, we could start forming some capital. And now we, we do syndicate just about everything and we've built kind of an apparatus to support that. What did you guys need to do in order to pivot to support that in terms of, you know, software systems, people, the whole thing. I mean, yeah. Sounds like a change for, for the, for the company there. Yeah, it really was. Cause I'd say from 2000 and uh, you know, until 2019, I had found and done every deal uh, for these partnerships. And mm-hmm. then my partners were doing property management, asset management, uh, some of the accounting. Each business only had one one employer, really just accounting. And then yeah. some, because some of these commercial deals are very easy to manage or we didn't even need a property manager. Just you get so few requests that you just, any one of us can handle it. And then I would do the lease renewals because then that's a, on a commercial deal, that's, you know, uh, millions of dollars being discussed. So we didn't want to just like yeah. pass it off to uh, a broker or somebody. Yeah. So yeah, that, um, so we did not on have the, on all the commercial stuff. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, yeah. And, and then every renewal, you know, they got to explain how they're about to go out of business and it's so tough out there. <laughs> and then, uh, right. you know, and it's like, and you're talking to like, you know, Panera bread and Panda express Verizon wireless where it's like, it's like, you guys have way, you know, your, uh, you know, public filings look pretty good, you know, on those two <laughs> where, you know, and, um, Panda express not public, but they're, you know, they're not hurting either, but yeah, yeah that, and then, on, but on the, and then on the residential deals, we, we managed most of those early on, but then, um, just, we, we still, we found a good property manager in Chicago, which is, mm-hmm. you know, hard to do, but if you can find a good third party manager, um, no need to build that out yourself. Yeah. Um, but early, you know, early on, we didn't find actually Chicago was the first place where I found a manager that I liked when I was buying deals in Madison. I didn't have one signed so up self-managing those after trying a couple bad third parties. Um, but and actually, yeah, I answer family. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's definitely more, more, uh, management intense, right? Yeah, for sure. And then uh, to actually answer your question, right. So we had no, you know, I didn't have any system set up for any LPs or anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we signed up for Juniper Square. So then we have our investor portal through that. And then um, one of the guys who was doing acquisitions for, for me, who was, let's say my analyst, he pivoted to be um, investor relations, asset management, okay. accounting review. Yeah. And then I hired, I hired two more acquisitions people. Um, and then one, one more entry level, and then one who was, uh, who has experienced and then eventually picked up a third. So then we have, um, you know, one asset manager and then two, uh, three acquisitions people, uh, in terms of like to round out the staff and yeah, everybody, um, yeah. So we had to build out a lot of systems though, cause we went from just me doing everything to now sort of, we need to, um, and I listened to a couple, I've listened to a number of your episodes. I know you're big into systems and and stuff. Um, and I, that's something I, I haven't done uh, a great job developing where sort of, I started out, um, I signed up for this uh, traits test called culture index. I don't know if you've heard yeah, of that. Sure. Definitely. Yeah. And so I was really focused on getting like the right people in the right roles. Um, and then I think the book that they recommended was who, not how, um, it. or yeah. it was just, and then, um, and then another one that I think was, uh, was just called who, uh, but I have to I have to check that one, but it was a hiring, another hiring book on a interview process that was really good. Um, and so I focused on really getting the right people in there, but in, and I have in, but I haven't built out like documented every process. Like here's, um, we have a due diligence checklist, uh, that we send everybody on every deal. And then a process we follow for that, but some of the other stuff we haven't, um, fully built out, but I'd like to, um, but it was a come in time. So, yeah, for sure. And I'm just having a software platform is such a huge, and I think LPs kind of expected at this point. I mean, yeah, uh, I've had LPs tell me a friend of mine that we were actually a partner on a deal many years ago. It's kind of helped me get my start as my first key principal on a multifamily deal. But he's like, man, if I'm looking at deals and, and the sponsors and I have a portal, I'm out. And I was like, really? That's like, that's a deciding factor for you. He's like, I just don't yeah. Like and once you're in, once you start to be an LP and a certain number of deals, it's like, all right, yeah, just make make it easy for me. I've got a buddy actually that started a company called Visor, V Y Z E R, and they are a software as a service platform that just consolidate. It's like four LPs. They just consolidate data across like all your LP investments, and um, which is a great problem to have, right? It's like oh, yeah, it's investments. We need a a unified dashboard on a software platform. <laughs> There's enough folks out there with that problem. Yeah, to build I, could, I could see that yeah. where even, you know, I've invested in a, a handful of deals 
with my 401k just passively, yeah. uh, you know, just, I guess I can't get enough real estate. And then also just to yeah. like, learn what others were doing. For and sure, I yeah. do, I do think one year where, um, I was filling out my thing that you got to report on what's the value. And I was filling out, I was like, Oh, I completely forgot about this deal where they're they're And I'm, and I'm really detailed. That's one thing that we were, that's been, uh, if if you were it would work here, you'd know like I, when we how we had all of our file saved was super organized, same pro, same setup on every deal. Yep. Uh, every time we buy a property or po- apply for a loan, anything or sell, everyone's like, "Wow, this is the most organized thing we've ever gotten sent." Um, anyways, like that's that's one thing that we're real uh, real sticklers on in the the file saving. And but I I actually forgot where we were going with that. Let's have it. I was just talking about like having so many LP investments, but really kind of back back to you guys chose Juniper Square. You've got a ton of organization built into these platforms, kind of right out of the box, what you're paying for. And then, so that just from an an investor perspective or experience perspective, that's kind of the the foundation of the house. And in my opinion, I mean, that was. uh, Yeah. And the the point I was getting at from the LP standpoint is I could see the need for that visor company because even me being really detailed and crazy about how we're saving our files down and uh, where one of the deals I forgot that I had invested in. Yeah. yeah, I think also that was, they had done no reporting the whole year. And, uh, you know, I just was like, wait a second, I I put this money, I put money into this uh, deal and I haven't heard from them in a, in a year. And let's, I need to track down this K one. Yeah. So that's important too. You know, I think our, our cadence on reporting, we've been doing quarterly, uh, quarterly reporting, monthly distributions. Um, You know, another thing we started doing, and this is like brand, brand new is anybody who's on our LP investor list, we're starting to send them a a monthly update. Mm -hmm. That's not about like a, a particular deal or anything. It's more just about what we're doing, what we're seeing in the market and like pretty, pretty uh, short and sweet kind of thing. But I think we, you know, one thing we have, the last deal we bought, we closed July, 2022. Okay. So we've had a lot of people sign up, let's say in the last year and not, they haven't seen any, any deals from us. So we want to also let them know, like, here's what we're working on. Uh, Actually the one that's coming out for, for April, it's going to be about like, we canceled what would have been our biggest deal ever last April, right. As the market was, you know, starting to change we saw yep. it was changing and had to pull out of it yep. uh and so it's going to be like a, a kind of like a you know what's happened in the last year and you know it's a, a good move in retrospect to cancel but at the time was not an easy decision yeah 100 percent um that's that's really important i think it's interesting the capital model that we sometimes do where you're always talking to potential new investors we talk about a lot, this internally, a lot, you know, we're all that we're constantly having new people kind of come into the tent and they're excited and they say, you know, what, what, how do I get in a deal? And it's like, well, you're going to get an email. And now that we've kind of established a relationship and, and it's, it's going to say that here's a project, we're having a webinar and, and you can sign up in the portal. Uh, but we're also going to send it to everybody else. And it's first. Come, yeah. first serve. And it's kind of a bad customer experience. Um, we've got to balance that with the needs of, us as an operator, like, well, we need the capital ASAP to close because we're raising it right before we need it to close. And so it, that's kind of a thing that we struggle with is deal flow and balancing, you know, new LPs coming in uh, along with legacy LPs that have been less for a decade, whatever, and um, trying to balance that out. One thing we did this year was launch a fund. And that's been interesting because it's an evergreen debt fund. 
and it's always open. So that's kind of changed our conversations a little bit with, with LPs and our investor relations department, where instead of, Hey, thanks for, thanks for coming in for setting up a call. Here's a little bit about our company. You know, we might have a deal to look at in three or four months, but I don't know, we're working on it now. It's like, we're going to have that. We're going to go get as many deals as we think makes the pencil. And, but then we also have this fund and it's kind of like another menu item. So that's been interesting to see this year that, okay, we do have something to talk about all the time that you could sign up for tomorrow, but we're also still continue to pursue multifamily or other kind of deals we do, but it's a balancing act. And, you know, you want, you want as many LPs as you can get, but you don't, you don't want 10% of your investor base to only, you know, get a crack at the deal. So that's, it's, it's interesting balance. And I'm sure you guys are going through all that having kind of come relatively recently to syndications, despite a ton of experience in these deals. Right. Right. Yeah. It's an interesting conversation to have where you'll talk to someone who's highly interested and wants to invest now. Yeah. And then you're like, well, actually that's not how it works. Like we, you need to have a new deal. And then, and so it's, it's interesting problem for both the investor and the sponsor. Mm -hmm. um, and then too, I don't, you know, I, I'd be curious what sort of stuff, cause funds are, uh, can be great, you know, as long as you can get the money out and then, um, you know, and that, that, they buy it or, you know, land on the types of properties you would have approved anyways, if you were the LP and wanted to have that discretion, you know, deal by deal. Um, so we haven't done a fund yet, but it's something where you see the, the, the need for it, where you tell these people are interested, but then there's, you know, it's just hurry up and wait kind of thing. So what, what kind of properties do you lend on then with your fund? Yeah, it took me years and years and years to feel like there was enough, um, to deploy it into, to go ahead and launch it. So we launch a debt fund. It's basically a first lien position in our own deals. And we've kind of spread out over the last couple of years from multifamily to we're doing a lot of land stuff and it's a completely different, you know, uh, asset class, but doing rural land and some, you know, those are a million to $10 million deals. So they, they can soak up some, some capital, but we yeah. can still come in first lien low leverage with the fund. And so, and then we're doing some uh, industrial development projects that are kind of call it three to $7 million projects where, Hey, we might need to buy a million dollar piece of land and go through six months of, you know, engineering work, stuff with the city, stuff with the architect. We don't need the 6 million, but we could put a million to work for six months and a first lien on that piece of dirt. And so it's just kind of cobbling together that many avenues of, yeah, if somebody put 3 million bucks in the fund tomorrow, I feel good enough. We're going to run a 10 or 20%, you know, kind of cash reserve at all times. And then the fund can be 80, 85% deployed. If you look at it kind of over a year. Um, so it's only because, you know, we've done so many different types of asset classes and there's enough deal flow there to make me feel comfortable about that. And then we've also got kind of as a reserve, we've got paid off assets where, all right, if I really needed to park this capital for some yield, we could, we could put a lien against this asset over here and it could generate some, some yield short term. So it's kind of a lot of paperwork, shuffling all that stuff around, but it's pretty cool too, to be able to just say, Hey, this is a million dollar piece of dirt we need for development throw the fund on it and off we go. Um, so yeah. And the, I remember seeing the fund on your website and the cash returns were, I thought were high, you know, 10%, and, 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 I mean, that's, that's kind of been the, 
I, you know, I used to borrow money for houses at 10% in the point. And I've always felt, I've always felt like 10% was kind of the number for investors that I talked to. It's like, you know, it's double digits. It's not, you know, our multifamily stuff has done IRRs in the twenties. It's awesome, but it's also multi-year hold, uh, maybe no cash flow first, you know, right. X amount of months. It's a, just a different deal. And it seems like over and over again across, you know, dozens or hundreds of LP conversations, 10% is just like, yeah, people feel good with that. And so that's kind of the the number we settled on. It, it's high. It, it puts pressure on us to deploy it for sure, but we've got enough um, different stuff to do and enough deal flow across kind of asset classes to to make it work. So that's been good. And then from a marketing perspective, it's cool to have something to always talk about. Versus, yeah, for, I totally agree with that. You know, we, we're in escrow on a multifamily deal, but it's been a year um, since our last deal. And I just had somebody in my office this morning from another firm that's trying to buy one of our deals. They came by and visited. And, you know, this is a head of acquisitions for a pretty big company. And he's like, I didn't do a deal in 2022. And they, this is a giant company. And he's like, yeah. you know, as the head acquisitions didn't do a deal last year. It's like, that's pretty wild. So anyway, um, it's, I can see that. And yeah, I agree with the 10% where we've done a few, a couple deals where we've borrowed money like that. And the number's been 10 because you're, you're not getting any of the upside either. So it's like, yeah, you can be in this apartment deal with an eight pref that, yeah, probably pays very little currently, but you have like a upside potentially from there. And, um, But yeah, that, no, that makes sense. And I think a lot of people, especially if the 10 can be paid currently, they would, you know, if you're like, just think of what your retirement look like if you're earning 10% on your, you know, a portion of your nest egg, like that's, that's a attractive number. For yeah, sure. 100%. And we, we always, we kind of say too, this is like, this is a first lien setup. So equity position, if you understand right. anything about a capital stack that yeah, higher returns for a reason, you're, you're sitting much higher up the stack behind a bank. This is like, well, you're basically coming in as a first lien construction loan or land loan at low leverage. So like a, the risk profile is pretty different too. And I think the I think the risk um, adjusted return on it's super, super compelling. And, you know, people yeah. t- tend to kind of pick up on that. Yeah, it makes sense. So that's, yeah, that's a common thing that I, um, that's interesting you solve for it that way. So yeah, nice. it took a while to kind of get... I guess where I felt the deal flow was going to be there, but, but uh, it's been, it's been good. And it's just another menu item to have. So you guys, um, what's the, what's the acquisition process look like when you guys are in multiple markets? Is it um, your acquisition teams just building broker relationships? Are they spending a lot of time out there? Are you, you know, what does deal volume look like and how, how do you guys handle all that? I mean, really kind of all the above on what you had just said, but sort of in the it, so far, 80% of the deals that I've done have been either off market or off market and through a broker or from a repeat seller. Mm-hmm. So we're real big awesome. on getting in, uh, establishing those broker relationships and then performing. You know, one of the the first larger deal we bought in Phoenix, I remember we closed it and I was joking with the broker, you know, I'm sorry, there was like not really anything to do on this deal for you once that we got it signed up where there's no drama or any any yep. anything for anything for you to work through like we just you know we just we just bought it and there Boy. wasn't any um <laughs> you know any 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 drama so sorry maybe you know maybe on the next one but that's um so we we pride ourselves on that obviously if the, you tell us like there's a new roof and it's uh 20 years old sure like we wouldn't just blow through and buy it like uh without getting a credit for the roof, but we, the, all these deals, you find a lot of small things 
and the brokers just want a smooth deal and we give them that. And so do the sellers where it's not the first deal we bought. And it's like a lot of these old, any building, even if it's newer, we're underwriting that there's some CapEx needed, even if it's not a renovation. It's just, I I think you could buy a brand new building and you're going to easily find 50,000 plus of just things to do that, you know, didn't get finished or a leak in this corner that they just, you know, um, didn't get a call about and you don't want to blow up the you know a deal over something like that at the size we're buying you know 50 grand is uh um is is not a huge number and going to be something where you you know we would already have it in our model Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is funny to say right i mean i think about like how hard our maintenance teams work right or whatever And, and then it's like i'm over here you know and a million bucks on a deal is you're like oh i guess kind of you know it could work, yeah. could not work, but it's like a it's a million dollars, and it and it's just it's just a totally different deal. But yeah, in the scheme of a thirty million dollar deal, it just kind of gets absorbed a lot. A lot gets absorbed, which is endlessly fascinating to me. But yeah, and we're already underwriting that though in it, where we know there's sure. going to be stuff that comes up, so I'm we're awesome. not ever assuming it's going to be perfect. And then we find a five thousand dollar item, and we're asking for five grand. Like we we're done yeah. with that. Yeah, but, you can't be you can't be petty. There was a guy, like I said, in my office today making off on one of our deals and his pitch was, Hey, we got agency debt, repeat ec- single source equity in this market. And we, we won't retrade you fool around. And I'm like, there, there you go. That's it. That's all anybody That's a good wants. Pitch. You know? Yeah. All anybody wants. Yeah. And in terms of the types of deals we're buying, you know, we're looking 5 million to 50 million uh, in terms of deal size in, yep. in those in, in Phoenix, in Dallas and in Austin. Yep. And we're, we're really looking for, let's call it uh core plus type deals. So that'd yeah. be like a newer building, let's say built 1990 or newer. And it doesn't, wouldn't usually have much to do physically with the building uh, in terms of like, it doesn't need a renovation program typically. And it's usually you're buying it because uh you have a, you know, there's some sort of discount you're getting in your mind where you're buying it on low rents or, uh, in, in 2020, I did three loan assumption deals, which that was back when the rates were n- not attractive on a loan yeah, assumption. So, at the time. Yeah, so we were getting discounts because of that because the interest rates were in the threes and we were assuming these loans that were already into their amortization schedules in the yep. mid fours. So it wasn't attractive to a lot of buyers. Um, and so we were able, you know, these were all agency loans and I've done uh, like r- around 30 agency loans. So it wasn't anything new for me. So mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't mind stepping into those. And we got, uh, and all those were acquired off market because they had talked to, um, I made it known that's what I had done a lot of deals on. So when brokers thought I have this loan assumption deal, they thought I should talk to to Drew and see if he likes it. Um, so really we've worked those broker networks hard uh, in terms of deal sourcing and we were starting to reach out to owners directly where, you know, we're, we're been building the company as how I like to see it over the last, uh, you know, well, over the last, you know, 20 years, we've been building the company, but really over the last year, I view what we've been focused on is building the company. We're right. When deals aren't penciling, like we're not just sort of sitting here looking out the window, we're, we're thinking, what can we improve on and, and reaching out to owners directly is something that we're doing, but we're not, you know, I don't, call an owner and ask if they want to sell like you want to just get a relationship going and then just kind of see what happens where you know i get a lot of voicemails where people literally they leave me the address and ask and say they want to make an offer you know well i don't want to sell that building right now so i guess there's not not much to talk about where if they wanted to compare notes or something or they own another building nearby we could chat about what we're going to do for 
you know, rents or what happened with our property taxes, that, that would be more interesting to me. So I'm trying to lead with something more like that. Yeah. Especially in assets, these size, you're not going from first date to marriage in the same, uh, in the same day, but I'm sure you get these two, you get like these wholesaler, you know, letters for your $20 million yeah. bill. buy all cash. It's like, yeah. Closing 30 a days waste of like, a letter yeah. to put me on the database there, but uh, yeah, not happening. Right. Agreed. Yeah. And the second type of deal we, we buy is your kind of more typical value add deal, you know, built, let's say, you know, 1980s or more recently that needs a renovation program. Mm -hmm. Uh, And those are, uh, you know, those, it's interesting today. uh, I will say that when I talk to LPs, everyone is more interested in whatever deal has the higher returns, which Mm -hmm. is very fascinating to me where, And I, and I think it's a mistake to be yes. blunt about it. And everyone who's the actual sponsor, or if you were just investing your own money, they would, they realize this concept, but you, let's say you have a value add deal and the LP returns are like, are 15% a year. Let's say that's your projected IRR. Mm-hmm. You could, if you bought a 1990, you know, a built building that didn't need any, any renovation, but you're just going to assume this loan and uh, maybe you have to put in a little more equity than you like. So you're getting a little bit of a discount or something. Maybe that makes a 12 IRR, but there's no moving pieces, you know? So your, your 12 is a lot more likely. And then, you know, on this renovation, you're going to have to, when you uh, vacate the building over time, re-rent it, take all this construction risk vacancy, refinance later on, cause you can't get a permanent loan right away. You've got all these moving pieces and, um, most of these LPs, they just, whatever has the highest projected return, they're like, I'll take that one. And it's interesting where the people actually doing it would be like, this is like 10 times more risky for, you know, a 3% more return. Like, why would we not just take the safer one? Um, so that's like an interesting thing that I've seen uh, everyone pick. And it just gets even sort of more uh, extreme when you go on like a crowd street type website, where then you could invest in this office uh, building where they're going to, um, acquire it and take it from 0% occupancy to 118 months and you make a 30 IRR. And it's like, yeah, okay, maybe they'll do that. Or maybe, maybe they'll, you guys will be selling it with no tenants, like the current seller, you know, and, and lose money. So like, there's, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of return chasing I see going on when you're actually doing it. You're, um, you think a lot more about the risks, you know, where I had saw Sam Zell talk uh, at something here in Chicago. This was like 10 years ago, mm-hmm. but him and the, is a former employee of his where they just talked about risk the whole time. Yeah. And basically like all the ways they just look at the deal, like new people look at all the upside, how it could go right and make a lot of money for, for them and the investor and the experienced ones just look at all the places they can get burned and focus on the most key variables, like your starting rents and your, where your property taxes are going to go are probably the two most important, you know, pieces of this. And then they don't, they're not, um, we're new people. They'll be real getting in the weeds on stuff. That's not going to drive the deal, you know, like making sure they got their utilities exactly right or something where it's yeah, important to be five years out. Right. It's like, yeah, it's important. You can't oh, be yeah. totally wrong, but it's like, I've never, you know, I've never looked at a deal gone haywire. Cause you know, um, because of the gas bill, but I have for people projecting too high of starting rents or the wrong, you know, property tax assumption or something. So. Yeah. hundred percent. I'm in the middle of Sam Zell's book right now. I enjoy it. They're big focus on uh big focus on just looking at the risk there. Um, yeah. I saw something too on, on Twitter kind of that reminds me of that, you know, they said LP, you show LPs two deals, one that is going to be 12% IRR and deliver 12% IRR and one that's going to promise 18 IRR and deliver 12 they're going to go for the second one every time. And it's like, 
you know, yeah. just whatever was promised. But I think we get so we spend all day th- living and breathing this stuff. You sometimes I th- think it's easy to kind of forget your own expertise. You've been doing this stuff for forever and you know, this stuff inside and out. And honestly, you know, a dentist LP, they, they might not at all. They're kind of opening the deck, looking at your IRR projection and making a decision. So I guess can't, can't blame people, but the execution risk on this stuff, I mean, it is so hard to do these deals and, you know, you got so much resting on a leasing agent, you know, maybe new starting her career, making X bucks an hour. And it's like, man, there's, if they knew what was riding on their performance, they might not be able to sleep at night, but there's a lot, you know, there's a lot going on, especially with these deep value add deals. And uh, I'm with you. People need to think about the risk adjusted component here. And I think that's hard if you're just a remote LP and you haven't done this stuff to really understand how much work really goes, goes into these projects. Um, yeah, I think that's right. So you said 5 million to 50 million. That's a pretty broad target. Um, how, you know, how have you found, property management to be given that you're, you know, remote and pursuing like a pretty broad range of, I guess, unit counts. What's, what's kind of your take on, on how that's been for you guys? Yeah. Well, what we've benefited from is we've at least, we've narrowed the field of what we're doing at least to to that amount where we have specialized in just apartments and just in those markets. So where we're, we've at least, you know, so we, it's not like in the, old days or where I'm, I was doing industrial and retail and multifamily and had an office building where we were like the local experts in the twin cities, let's say. So it's really, it hasn't been that different market to market where the, you know, other than the rules around evictions and security deposits, I'd say there's not a huge difference uh, across these different places where you can, evictions are a lot faster in Phoenix than in Chicago, you know, like the learning, the rules are, there's a bit of a learning curve. Um, but I, the, the only difference is just whether you have on-site staff or not, where, you know, cause I, once you're, if you're below a hundred units, you know, most people's rules of thumb is, you know, at a hundred units, it's one person in one person out. So your property manager in the office, your maintenance person out of the office. And so like in, in Phoenix, what we found is we have a company that's been really good at the sub 100 units. So no employees on site. And same thing with Chicago, the uh, property manager we have here, they specialize, they have thousands of units and pretty much none of them have any staff at their buildings where, um, and so, yeah, we have a 72 unit in Chicago with no staff at it, uh, mm-hmm. full time, you know, they're just a call away, sending the maintenance person sure. or a leasing agent. Yeah. And then, so that's been the biggest difference. And then when you were into a, let's say a hundred plus unit deal, um, that, it has staff like we we found a better property management company for that. So it just kind of knowing everybody's strengths and weaknesses, and you're only going to kind of find that out really by using them and being in the market. And then yeah, as far as actually being in the market, we we go at least once every month, uh, either myself or someone from the company, because um, yeah, some of these deals we're doing renovations, and you you need to stay on top of everybody. Where it's on top of the property management company, on top of your contractor, on just on top of everything. So no, we no. have weekly calls. We have. I mean, when we're talking to them basically every day, you know, and so it's, we're, there's a lot going on. And so we're, what we're not, um, and I, and so a lot of the sh- like Chicago properties, even though I'm here, I haven't, I don't, there's not a need to go to them that frequently, you know, mm-hmm. unless you're doing a renovation or changing something, then you feel like you're there every day. And so, um, so it hasn't been, uh, you know, I'd say, so we've been, we've done just fine, not being in the market of Phoenix with everyone being in Chicago, but obviously boots on the ground, I think is 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 
still better. I think it's been, we just overcame it by, um, it's not like our first apartment deal. We've already bought, you know, 20 in the Midwest. So then it wasn't, we knew what to ask, what to do. Um, and if some of the people we've hired have remarked that where they're like, you guys have done this before, you know, kind of thing, or, you know, cause also too, I started out from like, uh, literally doing every, every role. So when I bought my first deals in that Gary Eldred book, he said, you should manage your own properties yeah, and, you know, to learn what you're actually might hire out or what's needed. And I did that. And then, um, and I've turned units, I've painted, I've cleaned, I've done a fixed thing like where, so I've done every role from, um, you know, shoveling snow and, you know, to, uh, you know, to buying the building and refinancing it. So like, it's been, um, so, uh, you know, but boots on the ground's better. So I'm looking forward to being in Texas and, you know, being the, being the local, local Texan for the company here. So, <laughs> yeah, love it. I, I think there's a lot of uh, merit to what you said about actually doing the, the work and kind of coming up through the ranks, doing, doing all of it. Um, yeah, certainly people successful that are successful that haven't gone that route, but, um, I'm glad I went that route and it was unpleasant. I think on some of that stuff, Pl- plenty unpleasant in the, in the early days, but it it gave me uh, insights that I just don't think, I don't think you win them uh, uh, otherwise. So I think it's, I think it's important at least to have gone through it, even if you don't stay doing that too long. Um, yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Well, Drew, this has been awesome. I, I love hearing about your company and your start and your growth and um Welcome to to Texas. I know that move's coming up. If somebody listening wants to connect with you and the company, how can they do that? Yeah, you can go to brendaman.com and right there we have everything about our company, the deals we target. You can sign up to be on our be on our investor list. I also have a podcast too that I started about a year and a half ago uh called the Brendaman Blueprint. So you can find that on all the podcast platforms and on YouTube. So we kind of we get in it's similar conversations to this where it's more guests who are in real estate already, you know, lenders, brokers, sponsors, where I've been trying to add more passive investor content and how to do your first deals. I started out real in the weeds on, you know, like uh, advanced stuff right out of the box. So I have um, been trying to mix it up, but yeah, so no, that's been, been fun doing that. I've learned a lot, you know, having these kind of conversations been fun. That's awesome. How often do you guys publish on the podcast? Uh, Weekly. We finally have a, a more, you know, for the first year, I don't, our, our cadence, if you will, was just whenever one was ready, you know, yeah. so it could have been one week, could have been two weeks, but we've been going every Wednesday now for the whole year so far. So putting yeah. out a new episode. So awesome. Love it. Well, if you're listening, you can go to the show notes, click through the website and check that out. Um, Drew, it's been great. Awesome to connect with you and uh, wish you guys luck on your move to Texas and for the rest of the year ahead. Really appreciate you jumping on. Thanks for having me. All right. See you. Thank you for listening to the DJE podcast. For more information, please go to djetexas.com.